Well, good evening, everyone. Let's turn our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We are in the section in Mark's Gospel where actually it's uh, Friday morning, the day of the crucifixion. Uh, the night before, Jesus and his disciples had eaten the Passover meal together in the upper room. During the course of the meal, Judas had left and was out arranging to betray Jesus at that very moment to the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and all. After they had eaten, Jesus and his disciples, after he taught them for a time, got up and left the upper room. The time frame, of course, we're not sure about. We can speculate that dinner took place sometime just after sundown, and they ate a leisurely meal. Jesus spent some time teaching them. Uh, it's possible that they could have remained in the upper room till 10 o'clock or so. They got up, began to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, and Jesus continued to teach them. In fact, uh, John chapter 15, 16, and 17 all take place en route to the Mount of Olives, where he would spend some time in prayer, as we saw last time. Uh, but those chapters, Jesus was, was en route to the Mount of Olives, teaching them as they walked through the streets of Jerusalem. And uh, so by the time they got to the Mount of Olives, could have been 10.30, somewhere around there. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him into this private garden that one of his disciples no doubt owned because only the wealthy owned gardens on the Mount of Olives. And it was not like a typical garden as we're used to thinking of one. It was a, uh, an olive orchard. So Jesus leaves the other uh, eight disciples by the gate, takes Peter, James, and John into the garden. He asks them to stay and watch and pray with him. He goes about a stone's throw away, kneels down, and begins to pray. Three times he prays fervently that the Father, if it be possible, would take this cup from him. But nevertheless, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Each time he finished praying, he came back to find the disciples sleeping. Uh, they had just eaten a big meal. It was late now. But it says they were sleeping for sorrow. I mean, they were depressed. Uh, he was talking about going away. He was talking about dying. They couldn't deal with all of that. It just didn't register in their minds with regard to the Messiah and all. And so they were just kind of blocking it out. And I think part of it was the depression that brought on some sleep. And so after Jesus comes back the third time and finds them sleeping, he tells them to rest, to go on sleeping. Now, I think in Matthew's Gospel, there's a semicolon there, which means a period of time elapsed between the semicolon, between the time Jesus said to his disciples, go ahead and sleep until the time he said, get up, my betrayer comes. How long an interval that was, we don't know. Uh, if Jesus was in the garden for an hour or more praying, he did say to Peter, uh, can't you pray, watch and pray with me one hour? Probably he was speaking literally. Possibly by this time now, uh, by the time he finishes praying, 11.30, quarter to 12, midnight. We don't know from that time, from, uh, that time to the time Judas finally came with the the mob to arrest him how much time elapsed we don't know uh, it could very well be that an hour elapsed maybe more it could be that during that time Jesus spent the time praying for his disciples knowing that even though he himself had a very difficult day ahead of him his disciples he recognized also had a difficult time ahead of them so he could very well have spent the time praying for them but then we read in Matthew's, uh, excuse me, in Mark's gospel, verse 42, he finally says to them, rise up, let us go, see my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, 
one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and from the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Take him and lead him away safely, or the Greek implies securely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Matthew tells us he said to him basically, Hail, Rabbi. The word Rabbi means great one. And Judas is never recorded in the scriptures as having called Jesus Lord. Do you know that? The other disciples called him Lord. Judas never called him Lord. Judas called him Rabbi, which means great one. He gave up, came up to him, gave him a kiss, called him Rabbi, hail the great one. And you know, as I've thought about that, it's interesting how many people will kiss Jesus with Judas' lips in a sense and call him great one, but never bow to his lordship. There's a lot of people out there who think Jesus was a fantastic teacher, a great moral leader, a great religious man. And they extol him for his greatness, and yet they never bowed to his lordship. Well, Judas came up to him, and obviously he had this whole thing pre-planned with, uh, with the Pharisees and all, and the chief priests and scribes. The Greek says that he came up and he kept on kissing him, and it was a fervent kind of a kissing. He came up to him and kissed him, but it wasn't just the casual kiss of friendship. It was more than that. It was a fervent, uh, the Greek implies almost passionate kissing where he kept on kissing him. The same Greek word of the woman in Luke chapter 7 who came to Jesus when he was in the house of Simon the Pharisee and she stooped down and poured the fragrant oil on his feet and she began to, to wash his feet with her tears and uh, wipe them with her hair and she kissed his feet continuously. Same Greek word. Same word that was used of Paul the Apostle in Acts, or the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20. Remember when Paul spoke to them one last time and they fell on his neck and kissed him continuously, uh, fervently. They, they knew they would never see him again. It was that kind of a, of a kiss. You say, well, why? I really believe Judas was trying to preoccupy the Lord. I mean, Judas had seen him slip through the mob before. Several times they wanted to make him king. He slipped through their midst. A couple times they wanted to kill him. He just slipped out from between them. I mean, Judas had seen him escape, and I think he possibly wanted to preoccupy the Lord so that the soldiers and the temple priests can move in quickly and make the arrest. Either way, it was just totally uh, obnoxious and totally nauseating to see Judas coming to Jesus and offering him this, this kiss of affection, this kiss of love, which was actually just a sign of betrayal. And verse 46 says, they, they laid hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more. In Matthew chapter 26, we read in verse 49 how Judas went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Luke also records that Jesus added, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. 
And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Now, Luke and, uh, and Mark and uh, Matthew all record that one of the disciples drew his sword and cut the uh, high priest's servant ear off. They didn't name the disciple because they wrote their Gospels a lot earlier than John did. They didn't want to incriminate Peter. By the time that John wrote his Gospel, Peter had already been crucified. So John tells us it was Peter's, if you had to guess, right? I mean, I mean, if any one of the disciples was going to act impulsively, it was going to be Peter, right? And John tells us the servant's name was actually Malchus. Now, Luke records the disciples, when they saw that the men had come to, to get Jesus, they began to move toward him. The disciples said to him, Lord, shall we, shall we fight? Well, Peter didn't even wait for a res response. He just took his sword out and was going after the guy's head. Uh, thank God he wasn't a good swordsman. Malchus ducked and he just sliced his ear off. Well, Jesus immediately healed Malchus's ear, which was not out of, only out of compassion, no doubt, but it was also to save Peter's neck because if uh, Jesus had not healed the high priest's servant ear, uh, Peter would have been arrested on the spot as well and would have been four crosses on Calvary, not just three. So uh, Jesus prolonged the ministry of Peter. Uh, in a way, but uh, but obviously it was never brought up at the trial because they would have had to then acknowledge that Jesus worked another miracle. They didn't want any of that coming up, so better just leave it alone. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, there are Christians who have been confused because in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, while they were still in the upper room, Jesus is talking to them about the coming tribulation, the coming persecution, that he's going to be going away soon. And after he leaves, things are going to get tough for the disciples. The world is going to really vent its hatred of Jesus onto them. And Jesus is teaching them to be prepared. And he said in verse 36, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a sack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, because of this little conversation, there are a lot of people, and I've heard them today uh, on the radio, advocating that we Christians need to begin to arm ourselves. We need to begin to organize ourselves into militias, uh, to, to get uh, acquainted with, uh, with weapons and weaponry, because as Jesus said, the time was going, the coming is going to get increasingly more difficult. Therefore, as he told his disciples to buy swords and well, he's telling us that we need to arm ourselves and things like that. Getting ready now, organizing ourselves, because we are going to need to fight, literally, physically. Well, I believe that Jesus Christ was talking there in Luke chapter 22, not literally, but spiritually, figuratively. Why do I say that? Because of right here. When Jesus, when the disciples said, Lord, we have two swords, and Jesus said, it is enough, I don't think he was saying, well, oh, that's going to be plenty, guys. He knew how many soldiers were going to be coming, armed to the teeth, to arrest him. I think what he was saying is, it's enough. See, again, he's talking spiritually, 
their understanding physically, literally. They did this all throughout his ministry. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They began to talk among themselves. Why didn't you get bread? See, he's talking about having no bread. Who was supposed to buy the bread? And Jesus said, oh, don't you remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and how many loaves were left over and the 4,000 and how many baskets were left over? I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually. So all throughout his ministry, he was talking spiritual. They were thinking literal and they weren't connecting. And I think that was one case in Luke 22 where they just weren't connecting. He was talking about spiritual preparedness. He was saying, look, it's going to be like a war. Not literally. Paul the Apostle said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And the idea is that he's talking about the Christian life was going to become a war, spiritually speaking. But not that we were to arm ourselves and to go to war literally with our uh, with our enemies. That would violate everything and undermine everything the Lord said in his ministry about loving our enemies and, and praying for those who persecute you and so on. And the reason I know he was talking spiritually in Luke 22 is because right here, when Jesus, when uh, Peter pulls out the sword, no doubt still thinking literally of what Jesus had said earlier in the evening, he pulls out the sword and starts swinging. He cuts off Malchus's ear. And notice what Jesus said. He said, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, some people think that Jesus was speaking philosophically, that anyone who lives a violent life will die a violent death. And that could be part of what he was saying. But I personally think he was talking not philosophically. I think he was talking legally, in a sense. He was talking civilly, because I think what he was saying is, guys, no matter how unjust or wicked my arrest is, it still doesn't give you the right to become vigilantes and take the law into your own hands. Because if you do, know this, the civil magistrates have the sword. God has given them that sword to execute punishment on lawbreakers, and you will be put to death for taking an un another person's life unlawfully, even if that person is wrong in your eyes. So... It's obvious that Jesus is not advocating us arming ourselves, forming ourselves into militias. Uh, there is no such thing as a holy war. Any war that takes life in the name of Christ is unholy and again undermines and contradicts everything the Lord taught. So let's be careful of that because people will say, well, gee, Jesus said here, you know, you got to buy swords and so on and so forth. Jesus also went on to say as he stood before Pilate, he said, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If this was my, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. But because my kingdom is not of this world, my servants don't have to fight. See, uh, this is not his kingdom. Uh, we're not fighting. For, the Lord can take care of his own battles. And the day when he comes back, with a flaming sword proceeding out of his mouth, he will take vengeance on his enemies. And they will be cast into the winepress of Almighty God, and he will tread the, them in this winepress of, press of the fierceness of his wrath and all, and he will execute, or, uh, execute vengeance on his enemies. And he goes on to say, Peter, do you think that I need for you to defend me? Look it. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father? And he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000 men. So he is saying, Peter, 
Don't you know that at any time I could, I just have to say the word to my father and he will send me 72,000 angels? Now, man, angels are tough. I mean, I don't know how many 72,000 can wipe out, but we know that one wiped out 185,000 Assyrians under Sennacherib in the Old Testament. One angel after dinner one night, 185,000 guys. I mean, you, you don't want to mess with angels, okay? And obviously the, the, the point is clear. Peter, Jesus is saying, Peter, I don't need your help. Don't you understand? Verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must, it must happen thus? In Luke's gospel, he said, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me to drink? Remember how he had prayed earlier in the evening, if it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. But he said, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And obviously, he knew and we know it wasn't possible for men to be saved any other way than by Jesus going to the cross. And so Jesus is now saying, look, shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me to drink? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. I mean, what's all this about? I mean, what, what's this all about? I was with you every day. You could have taken me any time. What, what is this? You come out with all these men as, as if to, to, to catch a robber and a thief? But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that all the disciples forsook him and fled. And of course, there were many prophecies that dealt with this fact. Uh, one, of course, was smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. I mean, this was all part of fulfilled prophecy. And all prophecy will be fulfilled. The word of God will not uh, be broken. It will be fulfilled. Now, in John's gospel, John gives us even more insight in a different way to the events of that evening. Chapter 18 of John's gospel, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, and where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops. Now, John doesn't record the prayer in the garden. He just talks about them going over to the garden on the Mount of Olives. And now here comes Judas. And Judas has already been out. You remember, he left the, the dinner early and went out to... Uh, go to the high priests uh, and the, uh, the Pharisees and scribes and all to tell them the time had come, the opportune moment had come to take Christ. So here comes Judas and he's got with him a detachment of troops. A detachment of troops, which were a, a, uh, a group of Roman soldiers, uh, was between four and 600 men. They were heavily armed. They were highly trained professional soldiers. Along with them were officers from the chief priests. These would have been temple police. Now, the Roman soldiers carried swords, Mark tells us. The temple police carried clubs. They couldn't execute anybody because the Jews didn't have the authority to execute anyone. So the temple police didn't carry swords. They carried clubs, okay? And these came. You also had chief priests and Pharisees and scribes, another one tells us. There could have been as many as a thousand men all coming to arrest Jesus with Judas out in front leading the way, thousand guys all coming to arrest one carpenter and twelve sleep or eleven sleepy disciples. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, it was quite a compliment to Jesus Christ. Obviously, they considered him to be more than just a carpenter. 
And it says they came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. It was Passover time, which meant it was a full moon out. Also, history tells us that at Passover time, the city of Jerusalem was lit up like a Christmas tree, which means that there was probably more than enough light to arrest Jesus by, even on the Mount of Olives. The light from the city would have been sufficient enough to be able to see him to arrest him. Why the lanterns and torches? Well, it apparently indicates that these men thought they were going to have to look for Jesus in the bushes and all. That when they saw these this company of men coming, that he was going to hide. And they were going to have to you know, look in the bushes to, to try to find him. Obviously, they didn't understand his whole ministry. He said earlier, no one takes my life from me, but I give it freely for the sheep. I mean, he was right out in the open. He wasn't going to hide. He wasn't going to run. For this hour, he had come into the world. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? And by the way, these aren't questions phrased, you know, uh, sheepish questions, you know, like, well, you know, who are you guys looking for? You know, these come through in the Greek like commands. Who are you looking for? See, that's how they're coming across. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now the Greek literally says, I am. If you notice, the he in your Bibles is in italics, which means it was added by the translators for reasons of clarity. But in the Greek, he simply said, I am. Ego, me," which was, of course, the name of God. I am. We all remember the story of the burning bush. And God, speaking from the burning bush to Moses, said to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses said, Lord, I don't even know your name. I mean, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God says, you tell him I am is sending you. This was the name of God. Now, as soon as Jesus utters the name of God, an amazing thing happens. Verse 6 says, they all drew back and fell to the ground. As soon as Jesus said, I am, all these men were knocked to the ground by the power of God. The same God who spoke the universe into existence now knocks these men to the ground by the word of his power. You say, why? I mean, they were slain in the spirit. No. 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 Some people will use this passage to teach that, but no. No, this is something totally different going on. These guys were knocked to the ground by the power of God. Why? Because Jesus wanted his disciples, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leadership, and all of us to know who was in control of this moment. He didn't want any of us to get the wrong impression here. He wanted us to know that he was no victim. He was a victor. He was in control. All he had to do was to speak his name, the name of God, and a thousand guys were thrown to the ground. See, you will read... Some people will, will try to propose this, this idea of Christ, and that is that Jesus was a simple carpenter from Nazareth who had, who had delusions of grandeur, and so he grew up, you know, thinking himself to be Messiah and even the Son of God, and he gathered to himself a, a small following of disciples, and eventually things got out of control, and he wound up getting himself crucified. And there's a lot of people who propose that idea. But Jesus Christ wants all of us to know that, you know what, that's not what happened. That he, things did not get out of control and he got himself crucified. He was in total control. And he wanted all of us to know that. He was no 
victim, he was a victor. And then he goes on to say to them, well, then that they, they uh, picked themselves up off the ground, probably a little dazed, and he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. What a bunch of blockheads. I mean, <laughs> you think they learned, you think they may stay down, you know? Uh, it's amazing to me. How many people God has thrown to the ground trying to change their perspective of Jesus Christ? trying to get them to honestly and sincerely consider the claims of Christ. And what happens? They get right back up as ignorant and as blind as they were before, uh, as ignorant and blind as person and power, and go right on totally unchanged. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people have suffered tremendous trials, adversity. Unbelievers. God has knocked them to the ground, and then he's done something miraculous. He has healed them or he has done something in their life to, to communicate to them the reality of who Jesus is. And they get right up from that experience and go right on totally unchanged. They may come to church. They hear the word of God. They see the power of God working in other Christians' lives. They hear the testimonies. Maybe they even experience, as I said, a healing themselves, a touch from God. God is communicating to them. He's, in a way, he's shaking them and trying to get their attention to say, look, consider the claims of Christ. I want to change your perspective on who Jesus is. But they get right up and they go right on with their lives as if nothing has happened. Well, they said to him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They're still looking for a carpenter from Nazareth, man. Uh, he's more than a carpenter. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And again, in the Greek, he is giving a command. He is saying, look, if you're looking for me, then let these go. Who's in control here? Is this a, a carpenter making requests? No, it's a king giving commands. Jesus is in control, and he wants everyone to know that. Also, we see here Jesus standing as the good shepherd between his sheep and the wolves. And he's protecting them, even at this stage of his life, when they're about to take him and crucify him, he's still the good shepherd standing between his sheep and the wolves. And he is protecting them, as he still does in all of our lives. He stands there protecting his own. And it goes on to say that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into, into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of, of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And I want you to know one thing here, and obviously we, we all know this, but it wasn't the Roman soldiers that bound Jesus. It wasn't the Jewish leadership that bound Jesus. It was love that bound Jesus. It was the love of God for a lost and dying world. A love that was so unconditional and so powerful that it was willing to lay down his life for those that not only didn't love him but hated him and wanted to kill him. But see, that's the love of God. And Jesus allowed himself to be bound out of love. It wasn't the Romans or the Jewish leadership that bound him. It was love. Again, at any time he could have called to his father and 72,000 angels could have come to his rescue. But he willingly submitted to this because of his love. He came to die that the world might be saved or those in the world that would be willing to be saved. And they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas 
who was high priest that year. Annas and Caiaphas are two of the most despicable, vile, wicked people in all the Bible. And what makes it even more nauseating is that they were religious leaders who claimed to represent God. This actually begins the first of two trials that Jesus Christ would have to endure on that day. Jesus suffered through two trials, a religious trial and a civil trial. The religious trial had to do with Israel. The civil trial had to do with Rome. You see, the Jews did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. Rome had taken the right of capital punishment away from them. They did not have the authority to, to put Jesus to death, so they had to involve the Roman government in order to bring about Jesus' crucifixion. The religious trial took place first. It had three phases to it. The first part of it was the arraignment, which was the initial indictment before Annas, which took place immediately following the, the arrest in the garden. So as, as the soldiers came and arrested him, they immediately brought him to Annas, where he was arraigned. And there was the, the initial uh, indictment against him. After that, they brought him to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court. And they were hastily called into session in the middle of the night to hear this case. Of course, that was illegal, as we're going to see in a moment. In fact, everything about the trial was illegal. In fact, it was not even a trial. It was more of an inquisition, a, a kangaroo court. It was all just simply designed to railroad Christ. But the second part of it took place in the middle of the night in front of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. The word Sanhedrin means a sitting together. And it simply meant it was 71 leaders, Pharisees, scribes, elders, and one high priest, who all would convene to hear these cases and all. But as I said, they were not to meet at night, which they did. The whole thing was illegal. And finally, then the third phase was they all came together at daybreak to finalize everything and to make it look legal and above board. And after all that was over with, this whole sham of a religious trial, he was then shipped off to Pilate for the second trial he would have to endure, which was the civil trial. And that also had three phases of three parts to it. The first part took place in front of Pilate, and they brought Jesus to Pilate's judgment seat early in the morning. Now, we know that when Jesus was standing before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Peter was outside, which we'll see next week, denying the Lord. Remember how the cock crowed once and then twice? The cock starts crowing, and the rooster crows around 3 a.m. So that gives us a point of reference now, okay? So the second phase of this religious trial was going on right around... 3 a.m., 3.30 and all. And after the this ended around daybreak, he comes then, they bring him to Pilate's judgment seat, which was early in the morning, about 6 a.m. Pilate doesn't want to worry about this. Pilate doesn't want, he doesn't want to be involved in this at all. He doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He rightly surmises that this was some kind of religious issue that the religious leadership had against Jesus, and he doesn't want to get involved. I mean, what do I care about your religious laws, uh, he's going to wind up saying. So he doesn't want to get involved, but he's being pressured by the Jews to do something here. And wanting to find an out, and after he questions Jesus for a while, he finds out that Jesus was from Galilee. Well, he knows that Herod, who was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, is in town for the Passover. And so he ships Jesus off to Herod. Now, as Jesus stands before Herod, Herod doesn't know what to do with him either. 
But Herod has heard about Jesus and was hoping that maybe he would perform a little miracle to entertain him. But Jesus doesn't say a word to Herod at all. So after a while, Herod and his soldiers begin to mock him and, and, uh, and all of that. And they send them, him back to Pilate again, where Pilate is finally pressured into crucifying him. But the first part of this mock trial, the religious trial, took place at the house of Annas. Annas was the high priest in Israel from 6 to 15 AD. He was removed by the Roman government because they thought he had too much power and they wanted to appoint their own Jewish high priest, which simply meant they could sell the office to the highest bidder. Of course, Jewish law said that a high priest was a high priest for life. But in the New Testament, you had ex-high priests walking around. Now, Annas was probably the legitimate high priest. Uh, he was probably a descendant of Aaron, and one that had been appointed by the people to be high priest and all. Uh, and he was a very powerful man, so that even after he was removed by the Roman government, he still basically pulled the strings of the office. He still basically held the power. How? Because the next seven high priests after him, five were his sons, one was his grandson, and Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And all of these high priests that came after him were officially recognized by Rome as high priests, but they were just puppets of Rome. Annas was really the power behind the office, you see. He was the guy that the people recognized as the high priest, so for all intents and purposes, he was really the high priest and all. And he had so much power and so much money, and because the office went to the highest bidder, he just kept buying the office for relatives of his so that he could stay in control. Now you say, well, how did he get so rich? Well, Annas was the high priest, but the ringleader of this whole rip-off scheme they had going in the, t in the temple. When people would come to, uh, to give um, uh, an offering to God, uh, they, they would come with their Roman currency or their Greek currency, but the high priest had, had uh, decided that you could only give to God temple shekels. You couldn't put your Roman currency into the temple treasury or your Greek currency which meant you had to exchange your, your Roman money and all for temple shekels, which doesn't sound evil in and of itself. It, the problem was they were charging exorbitant exchange rates to change your Roman coinage into temple shekels, just ripping the people off totally. Also, if you came with a sacrifice to give to God, it had to be without spot or blemish, and so they had temple priests all around the outer court, when you came with your offering, whether it was a dove or a lamb or something, the temple priest would look it over, look it over with a fine tooth comb until he found one little blemish or flaw, he would reject it. And then say, well, you know, we have some pre-approved kosher sacrifices over here, and you had to buy one of theirs then, and doves were selling for four or five times what they were on the streets, and it was just totally ripping people off. And, of course, the high priest got extremely wealthy from this practice. Well, who cleansed the temple at least once and possibly twice during his ministry? Jesus did. Remember he went in, knocked over the money changers and the tables, and uh, drove out those who sold the animal sacrifice? He cleansed the temple. Well, that put a dent in the, you know, in the, uh, the, the priest and the high priest's pocketbook. So he was not pleased with Jesus, to say the least. So we see that Jesus is now then, first initially he's being brought to, uh, to Annas, but then later on he's then moved to the house of Caiaphas. Now let's pick it up 
back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Before we do, though, one thing I want to pick up here. Verse 51 says, now this is back when they are arresting Jesus in the garden. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And then the story goes on. You say, well, what is that doing there? What is that all about? Uh, Mark is the only gospel that records that little piece of information. And most commentators believe that this is John Mark's way of referring to himself. Uh, John Mark, of course, Mark, John Mark is, was his, his name, was writing this uh, years after the fact. Many people believe that the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, but from the accounts of Peter, that Mark accompanied Peter on a lot of his missionary journeys. And during the time that he accompanied Peter, Peter would go over the whole story of Jesus' life and ministry, and Mark would write it, wrote it all down. Okay, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. But a lot of people call Mark's gospel, really, in a sense, the gospel of Peter. Because they really see in it, Mark just kind of basically writing down what Peter had said. But we know that Mark was a young boy when Jesus was alive. We also know that Mark's mother, Mary, lived in a fairly good-sized home. We know that in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, uh, she opened her house up to the early church. and It was a meeting place for Christians in Jerusalem. In fact, they had all gathered there uh, the night when Jesus, uh, when um, Peter had been uh, in prison, remember? And they were praying for Peter's release, and then an angel came and led him out of prison, and he came knocking at the door, and Rhoda, uh, you know, opens the door and sees Peter standing there. She, closed, she gets so excited, she closes the door in his face and runs back to the group in the, in the other room and says, Peter, he's, by the, he's standing by the door. And they say, oh, get out of here, crazy, you saw a ghost, you know. And, but they were at the house of, of John Mark's mother, Mary. Some people believe that it could very well be that they were at John Mark's house the night of the Last Supper that they were actually in the upper room in Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, and that after Jesus and his disciples left that evening to walk to the Mount of Olives, by this time Judas could have come back with the Roman soldiers and temple priests and chief priests and all, come to the upper room, which naturally he would have probably have gone, thinking that they were still there. Well, they were gone by this time. And so Judas, of course, says, I know where he's at. Because Judas knew that it was the habit of Jesus' life to go to the Mount of Olives and pray, sometimes all night in the evening. Well, when they left to then go to the Mount of Olives, it could be that John Mark quickly threw on a linen blanket and followed. And when he got there and they began to arrest Jesus and all, some of the younger men who were with them tried to grab onto him and he just splits. They grabbed the blanket, he split and ran naked through the night. The first count of streaking in history. <laughs> Shows up right here in the Word. Uh, but a lot of people see in this, this little cryptic little couple verse thing, Mark's signature, as you would see uh, the signature of a painter in the lower corner of a, of, a, of a portrait, just to let you know it was done by him. Well, they see in this Mark's signature on his gospel. This is a way of letting people know he was there without naming himself, because at the time he could have probably gotten into some trouble and all. So he wanted to write this in here to say to people, the guy who ran naked, that was me. <laughs> I'm the guy. I put that in there. I was the guy. So verse 53, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. 
But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. After they left the house of Annas, they then brought Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest uh, that year. <laughs> Notice the scripture says that year. Rome was constantly replacing these high priests. That's why I said there was a lot of ex-high priests walking around uh, in Jesus' day, although a high priest was supposed to be a high priest for life. But they brought him then to Caiaphas' house. The Sanhedrin was supposed to only meet in the hall of hewn stone in the temple area. They had a special place they could meet. It was unlawful for them to meet anywhere else, really, to render judgment except there in the hall of hewn stone. But here they are in Caiaphas' house. It's in the middle of the night, which was illegal. The Mishnah said very clearly that they were not to convene any at night at all, was not to be done at night. Peter here follows at a distance, and he winds up in the courtyard with the servants of the high priest, and he warms himself at their fire. We'll leave that for next week because that fits into how Peter got himself into some problems then, following at a distance and warming himself by the enemy's fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Again, this is also illegal. They were only supposed to convene after allegations had already been made, after a formal charge had already been presented. They convened this kangaroo court, and then were looking for somebody to bring charges. Again, that was also illegal according to their law. Verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. The, their law also said all the witnesses had to agree. Had to be at least two, two or more, and they all had to agree exactly to what they had seen or the charges against the accused or else the accused was let go. Now, these guys had actually paid people to come and to bear false witness. And even then they couldn't get the story straight, these guys. Verse 57, And some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple with, that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now, Jesus had said something to that effect three years earlier in his ministry. John chapter 2 records that Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the disciples were shocked. They said, Lord, this temple has taken 46 years to build. How are you going to destroy it and raise it up in three days? But John, writing 60 years after the fact, pencils in a little commentary in parentheses and says, this he didn't mean the temple literally, but the temple of his body. See, they understood after the fact. He was again speaking spiritually, and here they are thinking literally. But he was said, look, destroy this body. Not I will destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up, speaking of the resurrection. But here these false witnesses say, yeah, we heard him say he was going to destroy the temple of God and then rebuild it. See, they couldn't even get that straight. Because Matthew records that the other witness says something a little different than this guy said, so they couldn't get anything straight. Verse 59, but not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? See, now, the high priest, who is Caiaphas, he's exasperated. I mean, he's frustrated now, okay? All of his witnesses coming through can't get their stories straight, so legally, none of their testimonies count. 
And he's frustrated now. He says, look, are you just going to be silent? Don't you hear what these guys are saying against you? Now, why was he silent? Why was he silent? Again, he was fulfilling scripture, fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was innocent, but he realized that no matter what he had to say, it wasn't going to matter. And so to fulfill prophecy, of course, he kept quiet because he knew that for this hour, again, he had come into the world, he knew where this was going. He wasn't about to try to stop it. It didn't matter what he was going to say anyway, so uh, they weren't going to listen. So he just kept quiet. Now the high priest gets so frustrated, verse 61, but he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Well, actually, in Matthew's gospel, it comes through a little more forcefully. What Caiaphas said was, I adjure you by the living God, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God, or not? Now, according to Jewish law, Jesus was required by law to answer that question when put in that way. And so Jesus then finally responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Jewish men who knew the scriptures very well, didn't live by the scriptures, didn't understand the scriptures all that well, but they knew the scriptures. And they knew he was quoting out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel is prophesying about Messiah. And everyone in that room that night knew that the scripture out of Daniel was prophesying about Messiah. And Jesus quotes from it and applies it to himself. And out of Daniel 3, uh, chapter 7, 13, it says, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. What Jesus was saying is, gentlemen, yes, I am. Using the name of God again, yes, I am. And you know what? <laughs> yes, I am. And you know what? <laughs> right now I'm being judged by you. But someday I'm going to be the judge. I mean, right now you think you have control and power over this situation, but in reality, this is all going along according to the predetermined counsel and program of God. As Peter went on to preach in Acts chapter 2, remember how that the whole crucifixion, Peter said, was all in the plan of God. Things didn't get out of control, and Jesus wound up getting himself crucified. It all fit into the plan and program of God. And Jesus said, right now you think you have the power you're in control, you think, and you're judging me, but the day is coming when I, the Son of Man, will come and will judge all of you. Well, that did it. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Now again, and by the way, 30 prophecies were fulfilled this day. But again, some more laws were broken. First of all, the Jewish law said that a man could not incriminate himself. Witnesses had to be brought. And a man could not incriminate himself in the Sanhedrin. 
the high priest says, look, and he, he actually commands Jesus to incriminate himself. Secondly, the high priest tore his clothes. That was against the Levitical law. High priest was never to tear his garments. In fact, there was not to be any show of emotion in the Sanhedrin at all. But in this dramatic display of emotion, which could have been rooted in some, in some sincerity. I mean, here was a man, the high priest was God, Jesus standing before him, who claims to be God incarnate and Messiah of Israel. And he's standing before the Jewish Supreme Court. His own disciples have fled in terror. It sounded a little absurd, didn't it? But of course, that's because these men didn't know the scriptures. They didn't, they knew the scriptures, but they didn't really understand the scriptures. If they had, Jesus said many times, they would have understood who he was. So the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And, all, and they all condemned him to be worthy of death. Again, they broke a law. And the Mishnah says they were to each render their verdict separately from the youngest member of the Sanhedrin to the oldest member. That way the younger were not influenced by the decision of the older members. They were to each render their verdict separately and if it came through that there was to be a death verdict they would have to wait until the third day to actually carry out the sentence which would give them one day to think it over and they would then convene again on the third day after the conviction and they would all go around the table again and say well has anyone changed their mind because the idea was they were to demonstrate mercy see the whole motto of the Sanhedrin was to save life, not destroy life. That was their motto. And in fact, in their own law, it said if everyone voted guilty, the man was supposed to be let go. Because then that would indicate there wasn't mercy present. So if everyone voted guilty, then the prisoner had to be let go. See, they broke every one of their laws. They all said, yes, we all find him guilty. They, ex they had him executed on that day instead of waiting to the third day. See, they, they broke, it was, the whole thing was a total sham, a total sham. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? Well, it would have only been blasphemy, of course, if Jesus had not been who he claimed to be. I mean, that was really the, that was really the issue, wasn't it? I mean, they thought it was blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, all throughout his ministry he claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, in John chapter 6, and I bring this up because there's a lot of people who like to say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. All you Christians say he claimed, he never claimed to be the Son of God. Baloney. He claimed to be the Son of God all the time. In John chapter 6, chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse, verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The Greek says that he continually said that God was his father, thus continually making himself equal with God. You see, in the Jewish mindset, a son was always equal to his father. So when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he was claiming to be equal with the Father. Now, they understood what he was saying. They didn't agree with it, but they certainly understood who he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be not just Messiah, 
because the Jews felt Messiah was going to be a man like Moses. But Jesus was not only, claiming to be, not only claiming to be Messiah, but the Son of God. See, that was one of the big reasons why they had him crucified. Not simply because his life totally condemned their hypocrisy and because he pointed it out to them every chance he got, uh, but that he made himself to be the Son of God, thus making himself equal with God. The Jews didn't believe that Messiah was going to be the Son of God. See, but Jesus came claiming to be the Son of God, and so they thought he was blaspheming. We, of course, know that he was not. He was telling the truth. Verse 65, Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, hear this supposed group of godly religious men totally degenerates into a into a sick mob they covered his face the Greek implies to totally cover one's face why did they do that well not only to mock him by saying prophesy who struck you the Greek implies that some took closed fists and punched him some slapped him with open hands but the Greek could be translated struck him with rods on the cheek Isaiah tells us in fact Jesus was actually speaking through Isaiah writing these things Isaiah wrote these things down about the abuse he was going to take at the hands of the chief priests and scribes and Roman soldiers before the crucifixion and what Jesus said was I gave my back or I gave my face to the smiters and to those that plucked out my beard and Jesus is talking about the fact that he was enduring this beating that they actually ripped the beard from his face they didn't just beat him they beat him you ever have you ever seen somebody who has endured such a horrible beating that they don't even look human anymore and it's hard to even look at him Isaiah said that he was so marred more than any other man the Hebrew is a little clumsy but what Isaiah is saying here is that he was so badly beaten that he didn't even look any longer like a human being. That's how badly he was beaten by the temple guards, the Roman soldiers. They, they tore his beard out of his face. He was so disfigured that I wonder if that was the reason why after his crucifixion and resurrection, nobody recognized him. You ever wonder? After Jesus rose from the dead, First he appeared to Mary by the garden tomb. She thought he was the gardener. She didn't recognize him. It wasn't until after she, he said, Mary. And by the inflection in his voice, she recognized that was the way that the Lord used to say her name. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He walked with them. They didn't recognize him either. It wasn't until after they got to the village of Emmaus and they persuaded him to have food with them and he broke the bread and they saw the nail print. Well, it doesn't say, but he broke the bread, it says, and their eyes were opened and they knew who he was and he disappeared from their midst. Why did they recognize him then? Possibly because they saw the nail prints in his hand. And then remember on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, some time later, when Peter and the other disciples went fishing, and they fished all night and caught nothing. And they, in the morning they saw a man standing on the shores. And he said, look, have you, you know, little children, have you caught any meat? And they said, no. He said, well, cast your net on the other side. 
And they did, and immediately it was filled with fish, and John says, it's the Lord, you know. And so Peter dives off the boat and swims to shore, and they come rowing the boat in with this big haul of fish. And, and by the time they got to shore, it says that Jesus had already made a fire, and he had some fish cooking and all. And then John makes a very mysterious, haunting statement when he says, and none of us dared ask him if he was the Lord, for we knew it was. Now, that's a strange statement to say. None of us dared ask him, are you the Lord? For we all knew he was. Why? Why didn't anyone recognize him? It could be that because even as he bore the marks of his crucifixion, he, he bore the marks of the horrible beating he took at the hands of these men. The Bible says that in ages yet to come, we're going to be able to understand the depth of his love for us. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus for all eternity is going to bear the marks of his crucifixion? Could be. Maybe the marks of his crucifixion were the, the display of his love for us for all eternity. I know in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, remember when John was standing by the throne of God and uh, the cry went out, who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals thereof? And no one was found worthy in heaven or, earth or under the earth to take the scroll and loose the seven seals. And John began to cry convulsively and one of the elders says John weep not behold the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and John turns around and what does he see a lamb as it what as it had been slain it could very well be that Jesus bore the marks of his not we know he bore the marks of his crucifixion the nail prints and all but he could have very well also have borne the marks of that horrible beating he took a beating so horrible that he was not even recognizable as a human being anymore but he did that for us because he loved us. That's something to think about. We are so used to the story of the crucifixion that I think we gloss over it. We, I think, lose the impact of what he went through for us. And of course, it was all out of love. It was love that caused him to submit to the whole thing. Think about that next time. You're prone to want to deny him. You know, when the going gets tough and you want to get going, and run or not stand up for him think about how he stood up for you and I'll tell you what uh, I think it'll help uh, in your boldness to stand up for him now as all this was going on inside Peter was standing outside warming himself by the enemy's fire now as Peter was below in the courtyard one of the servant girls of the high priest came and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now this had to be pretty humiliating for Peter. First of all, he pledges total loyalty to the point of death. And now he denies the Lord, not from torture or a beating by the Roman soldier, but a servant girl. You know, says, you're, aren't you, you're one of his disciples too. And he begins to, he says, he said in verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. Getting to that time in the morning now, who grew up on a farm? Anybody here? When do roosters crow on farms? 4.30, 5 o'clock, I would imagine. Yeah. So the first rooster, this rooster crowed for the first time. Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you'll have denied me three times. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him again as Peter moved out to the porch and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. 
But he denied it again, and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, again, surely you are one of them, for you, you are a Galilean, and your speech shows that you got that accent, man. We, <laughs> the Galileans had a kind of an accent, and uh, Galilee was like Hicktown, you know? So y'all, or, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it kind of spoke with a kind of a drawl or something, I don't know, or a the Galilean brogue or something, but they, <laughs> they, uh, they, they could tell he was a Galilean. And of course, Jesus was from Galilee. And um, so finally, the soldiers around this fire were saying, hey, you, know, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. We can tell by the way you talk. Then Peter began to curse and swear. This is not profanity now. He is calling down curses upon himself and swearing with an oath that he doesn't know this man. And may curses come upon me if I'm lying and so on. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Now what Mark doesn't tell you, but Luke does, is when the rooster crowed the second time, Peter was outside on the porch, and apparently he could see into Caiaphas's house where Jesus was being questioned, and as Peter denied him the third time, and the rooster crowed the third time, a second time. Luke tells us that Jesus turned around and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that? And I think that's what broke Peter. Sure, he knew he denied the Lord, but to see Jesus actually look at him. And I don't know what look Jesus gave to Peter. I personally don't think it was one of anger. I'm not even sure it was one of disappointment, because Jesus knew. But the pain was still there, you know? And I think he just, just the look of, maybe hurt, or maybe even compassion. But it just broke Peter, right there. And so, the words of Jesus came to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. He wept bitterly, it says in the other Gospels. Peter went out and wept, not like Judas. Judas wept tears of remorse and hung himself. Peter wept tears of repentance and was restored. It's a difference. What's the difference between remorse and repentance? Remorse is being sorry that I got caught. Remorse is the consequences I have to endure because of what I've done. It's all about me. Repentance is saying I was wrong and I want to make it right. Peter was sincere. He, was a, he had a good heart. He made promises he couldn't keep and the Lord had to break him hard. But for three days, Peter was isolated, probably broken, weeping constantly. And when Jesus rose from the dead, who was the first person he sought out? Peter. He restored Peter. He was the first one he went to find because he loved him. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you that you gave to us your only begotten Son, whom you loved with all your heart, to die for sinners such as we. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were a willing sacrifice. Nobody could take your life from you, Lord, we know that. But you gave it willingly for your sheep. It was love that bound you that night. It was love that endured that horrible beating and that spitting and that mocking when at any time you could have called 
and 72,000 angels would have come to rescue you. You submitted to the whole thing, Lord, because without submitting to that horrible beating and the crucifixion, we could not be saved. And you put our needs above your own. Lord, help us to put the needs of others above our own, that we might walk in your footsteps. Although we can never be like you completely, Lord, help us to, to seek to follow your example. Although we can never come to fully replicate your love that you showed this world, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to love the people of this world in a small way the way you did. We just ask you, Lord, to help us to deeply consider the things we've studied tonight. That we would honestly and sincerely desire to stand up for you and not to be like the disciples that evening who forsook you and fled, but that we might truly stand up for you, Lord, and to be counted among those who are faithful to you. We just thank you now. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name.